Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. I spoke a little too soon last week. Yeah, studying uh, the end of Mark, and so this week it re- realized that not only will we conclude Mark January 8th, but we'll, that same talk will launch uh, a new series. So it'll be sort of a transition passage. That'll be uh, Mark chapter 16. Uh, but today, uh, we come in our study of Mark to uh, the burial of Jesus. And again, we find some surprising features, some strange characters that add to our understanding of Jesus' death and the uniqueness of Jesus' death. Now, last week, we, we came upon the centurion, the Roman guard, which sort of becomes the highlight Uh, of the book, the the climax of the book, confessionally and Christologically come together in in the words, in the confession of one of the Roman soldiers who led, uh, you know, sort of oversaw the death of Christ. And this week we come across some other characters. There's women at this scene that we haven't seen. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea. And when you look at the groups together and you think about what the cross has brought together here, there's three groups that you'd never see hanging out together. You got women, you got pagans, and you got Pharisee. And they're all hanging out here at the cross. And you see something about the death of Christ that uh, sort of gets revealed through this, how subversive the cross is, was and is, and how radically it changes perspective about everything, reality, culture. In fact, I listed a number of things that happened with these three groups coming together. Uh, you got to see the world differently sexually. You got to see it socially different, morally different, politically different, racially different, because th- these three are uh, they're a hotbed of cultural issues represented as they come around the cross. And so as I was thinking about uh, how to present this little uh, very important text on the burial of Christ, there's some hidden truths that come out. There's some secrets that get revealed. And we'll start our secrets with the ladies. They're the first one. Uh, And their role here, as you might expect, is very powerful, very startling, very complicated, and very important. Now, that's a lady for you. Uh, And Mark has kept them pretty much a secret up to now. If you read the other Gospels, you will see the ladies appear throughout, you know, Luke. And in Mark, Jesus has kept them sort of in the background. And when you look at the text, listen to what it says. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. She's in all of the texts. She's in all the Gospels. Very important figure uh, toward the, uh, the end of the Gospels. Then Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and then Salome. Uh, When he was in Galilee, they had followed him. So they got, there's discipleship language used of them. And and they gave him support. Luke's a little clearer on some of the things that they did, because they they added financial support. 
things like that. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem were there too. So that means these ladies, whatever it was they were doing back home, when Jesus came to, Gal- or to Jerusalem from Galilee, they were there. They've been here all along. And Mark sort of springs this, this little secret out, if you will, about these ladies. And uh, they were obviously very strategic and very supportive of Jesus's ministry, because up to now, you would have thought this was a totally male gig, discipleship, especially reading Mark. Um, and the truth is, they're not there. I mean, there's no disciples to speak of, except for these ladies. Um, now, in Jewish culture, you'd be very unlikely to find a lady attached to a rabbi and, and, and being discipled. It was, it was a male thing. All right, so for these ladies to be doing that is already signaling something very unique that Mark centers around the death and the burial of Christ. In that culture, the Mediterranean culture Jesus lived in, uh, Jews and Romans alike, Jewish and Roman alike, they were, uh, women were considered property. And when you read the laws and you read the way culture was designed, women, they basically held, from a class perspective, uh, the the, uh, uh, what children did. So they weren't considered very much. They were discarded at birth very often. Uh, they were undervalued, subservient, disposable. And you can, you can read their history. It's pretty amazing. It made them very vulnerable. Uh, so uh, and it's like, like if you read the story of Mary and Martha, you know, we typically read that story and we think, well, Martha, you know, is in the kitchen and trying to get a lot of things done, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet doing what a disciple would do, what a guy would do. And Martha comes running out of the kitchen. She says, hey, she needs to be doing girl stuff. She's not doing the girl stuff. And Jesus right there could have fallen right in line with cultural perspective. But he immediately told Martha, Martha, she's doing the more important thing. That would have been a very radical thing for a rabbi to say, for a teacher to say. So Jesus is really crossing lines culturally in, in this moment here. And you can see there's a unifying that Jesus' death, as Mark is presenting, is creating. A radical community with others, as we'll see uh, this develop. If you're a woman in this story, if your name was listed here, or you were among those women, you might ask the question, what was it about Jesus that would make them want to do that? Sort of stand out in culture, following a rabbi. Leave your home in Jerusalem. Follow this guy around this. And then watch as all of the details of the passion play out. Well, Dorothy Sayers was the first woman to receive a degree from Oxford. She graduated with honors, a devoted follower of Christ, and she writes something I I think uh, applies here. She says, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. A prophet and teacher, uh, she actually says this, they had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed them or patronized them, 
who never made jokes about them, who never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without demeaning, praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. Who had, this is a great line, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. A very profound statement. Jesus gave them value and dignity that they did not receive in their culture. Perhaps it's not that difficult to understand why they would follow him. Another interesting note that you'll think about the end of the Gospels is that uh, the women in that day had no, they, they, they didn't have any uh, sort of legal clout. They had no legal standing, so their testimony didn't mean much. It, you wouldn't want to use it in the court of law, which is why early history in Christianity, Greek philo- uh, philosophers and historians made fun of Christianity, and they made fun of the resurrection because they said you had a bunch of women Actually, quote, hysterical women. What would you expect? And because it was ladies who were testifying about the resurrection. So they, uh, it's very interesting that they are the only ones to actually witness the triad, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The men are gone. Uh, no one else saw it. No one else knew what God was up to but them. And so the most crucial moment in all of history, in all of eternity, uh, he entrusted them at a time when society wouldn't have trusted a word that they said. That is a very important fact. Uh, they were the first in on the secret. I had a visitor uh, last week who's been coming to Hillside for a couple of weeks just coming from another church and asked me, uh, asked me about the role of women here. So when I'm out, in the, somebody will ask me that question. I mean, I haven't been asked it in a while, but very often people coming from different cultural backgrounds want to know the role of women. So we had a conversation. I'm not going to repeat that whole conversation with you here, but, you know, uh, the Scriptures, uh, while they unify us, they unify us in our diversity they don't flatten out all of our differences. They don't say, you're no longer feminine or you're no longer masculine. No, you're masculine if you're masculine and you're feminine if you're feminine. And you come together and you figure out how to partner. You figure out how to find unity in that. It doesn't flatten, but at the same time, I was able to tell him that, you know, we're unified. We have different functions, though. We function differently in the home, in the church. And I was explaining that to him. But I said, we have equal value. And it got me thinking about another element, about Hillside, in light of this text. And that's the fact of uh, the the impact the women women have had on this church as a whole. I don't think I have any way of of really trying to explain just the, the influence women have had in who Hillside is. Uh, You know, I think of the three matriarchs of Hillside, uh, yeah, Carolyn Wakefield and Cindy Duff and Gail, you know, these were, these were ladies who were praying and loving this church before it, before it was ever anything. Um, 
and then have over 21 years invested their lives in this church in numerous different ways that has made Hillside better. And then I went through the list of our staff because we have (laughs) more women on. I don't know what that means. We have lots of more. I mean, if you look at the yellow, I mean, I got they're all ladies. I mean, I'm going to list them for you. Got Lindsay Hodges, Gail Chiafalo, Jill Bream, Amy Haley, Tammy Waters, Sherry Kyle, Jen Helsley, Jen Zeb, Lori Zanar, Robin Callahan, Tracy Jones, Suzanne Parkhill, Tracy Wittick, Lydia Russell, Amber Farco, Kim Karkos, Megan Maxwell, Christy Mater, Carmelita Nelson, Brooke Greer, Missy Schneider, and there's a host of other ladies who aren't here. This is more staff. Uh, that contribute to the life of this church and their gifts and their talent and their commitment and the way they get things done. I just thought it would be a good moment to just, uh, let's see, I got Kelly Leach down here. I got Casey Wiggum and there's a bunch of others. And if your name isn't listed on here, pardon me. I just want you to hear how many women we have making a difference in the life of this church. And I want to say thank you to all of you. Reminds me of a story that I read many, many, many years ago, and you might have, I'm sure I've told it before, uh, about a chief executive officer and his wife were traveling, and uh, they were on vacation, so they were going through a small town, pulled into a gas station to get gas, and the CEO walked into the gas station, and uh, when he came out, his wife was talking to the gas station attendant by the car. Well, he got in, and they finished and got in, and they drove off, and it was quiet for a second, but he couldn't help himself. He just said, well, who, who was that? And it turns out she knew this guy when she was in high school, and they actually dated. And so the CEO uh, was feeling a little smug, and he said to his wife, I bet you're thinking, you're really glad you married me instead of him. And she said, well, actually, I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd have been the CEO, and you would have been the gas station. (laughs) In our culture, it's likely that she's the CEO, so I'm just saying. But anyway, uh, they have a profound impact. Now, we're not done with the ladies. Like I said, they're complicated, all right, and I mean that in in the... their role in, let me say it this way, their role in this text is complicated. You're not complicated at all, ladies. But their role in this text is very complicated. Uh, and, and I'll get back to it. But the next secret that gets revealed is equally profound, and it comes from a very surprising and unexpected guy in this text, and that's Joseph of Arimathea, who asks for Jesus' body and is going to be in charge of making sure he gets buried. All right? Uh, and he's mentioned in all four Gospels, as are the ladies, so he's an important figure here. And he is a direct contrast to the centurion that we saw last week. The centurion is a Gentile, he's Roman, he's uh, a pagan. And then, so you can see, there's, there's racial differences with the Gentile and the Jew. You've got political differences, you've got Moral differences, got religious differences. They're all changing. And, and of course, in contrast to the women, the Joseph of Arimathea, who's a Pharisee, he's one of the 71, he's one of the Sanhedrin. He's, he's literally had a front row seat of, at all of Jesus' passion, all of the issues, all of the conversations, all of the, the beatings, all of it. He's been right there. The, the voting has been a part of all of it. 
And so he's in contrast to the women. He has, he's a male. He has power. He's, in the, he's one of the consummate elites. There's only 71 who can be in this group. You had to have clout and uh, you know, a resume that would fit into that. You know, fit that role. He's a religious leader. On top of that, he's got money. He could not be in a more powerful place. The women could not be in a more vulnerable place. And on contrast to that, the centurion, one's, one's a religious perfectionist, and one is a pagan. And they meet at the cross, and they come together in faith. And... Uh, and so you get this text that says, um, Joseph of Arimathea, a highly regarded member. Mark is going to make sure you know who this is because he's an important figure, it really, in every way. Member of the council, he was, he's got a spiritual side to him that we'll see comes out because he's interested in the kingdom of God, which is Mark's message. It's been Mark's message from the beginning. Jesus is a king. He runs a kingdom. And he comes to Pilate boldly, and that's what stands out. He stands out because that stands out, that he goes to ask for the, for the body of Jesus. Now, here's where the, the uh, Mark bringing in the women gets a little bit complicated. Because on the one hand, it's, it's, it's the cross saying, look who Jesus is. Look, look at the different groups Jesus has gathered. On the other hand, if you look at the whole text, this is not designed for you to read, okay? This is designed for you to look at verse 40 where we start and all the way down to verse 8 where the angel tells them about the resurrection and the ladies, they're the only ones there. If you look at both ends of the story, the women start the story and the women end the story, and then Joseph is in the middle. And what we see about the women is they're kind of functioning like Peter. On the one hand, you go, at least they're there because the rest of the guys aren't. On the other hand, you see them contrasted with the guy in the middle. And Jesus is saying at some level, they, they follow from a distance. And then when they hear the message of the cross, which will focus, or the resurrection, we'll look at closer next week, they're afraid. And so you just see a contrast between the fear and actually bold. So they're watching from a distance. They're afraid. And then, you see, and then you see a bold character in there. And Mark wants to highlight the guy whose faith is bold as a message to men and women alike. This is the faith. And it comes in Joseph, this character right here. So the gals, at one hand, make the guys look bad. Joseph, on the other hand, Makes them both look, makes their, makes their faith look wanting. There's another level. And I say they're complicated because uh, the reason the ladies are, <laughs> there's, there's really two reasons that they become central to this thing. Historically, they're witnesses. They see it all. They function as witnesses to the historicity of Jesus actually dying. All right, death between the centurion and, the, and Pilate and the women. Uh, there's, a, there's the fact that Jesus actually died. 
so that nobody thinks he just, you know, the swoon theory where he just sort of comes back to life. So they're a part of that historicity. They're also come back to the tomb Sunday morning because Joseph and one of his buddies, as we'll see in a minute, who are going to take Jesus' body and put it in the grave, you know, trying to do it before Sabbath, because you can't do anything after sundown. Jesus dies at 3. Sometime between 3 and 6, he's got to get this done. It's not he's got to give up his own family grave. He was wealthy. That was his family. No, none of his family were in there, we know from the Gospels. So he's going to put his own, he's going to, put, he's going to treat Jesus like family. And put him in, in there. He's got to do all of that. They don't have time to really sp- do all the spices that, you know, the spice up Jesus a little before he dies. So the women decide they're going to come back Sunday and do that. And in chapter 16, they're coming back and they're probably, and they're, yak- they're yickety yakking with each other about their spices and probably where they got them on sale and, uh, you know, on Hobby Lobby and a great idea for the body on Pinterest that they're going to do. I don't know. I don't know. They're doing all that kind of stuff as they're approaching the deal, and they make this comment, you know, that, uh, oh, uh, we don't have anyone to roll the stone away. And that's, that's sort of women speak, if I may interpret. That means there's no guys around. So they're really throwing the guys under the bus there. And I know, I can read it, I can see it in the original language. That's, that's the sort of throwing the guys under the bus. That we don't have the guys around. And it's a great observation. I hadn't even thought about rolling the stone away. So on the one hand, they're a foil to the men, but on the other hand... They're not exactly what Jesus wants them to be for any of us, the men or the women. And so Joseph pops into the scene, and evidently we learn in John that Joseph has a friend, Nicodemus, another Pharisee. Nicodemus is the other Pharisee. He helps Joseph. In fact, uh, I would have loved to have seen the conversation that they have together. But uh, look what John 19 says about these two characters. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, look at this, a disciple of Jesus. So for a while, he's just like the ladies. Look what it says. But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, look, he feared too. He was operating with fear just like the ladies were operating with fear until this moment. Something happens. And... He asks Pilate for the, you know, for the body. Pilate take, gives him the body. And Nicodemus, the man who had previously come to Jesus at night, accompanied Joseph carrying a mixture of myrrh. So he has a few spices with him, but it's not enough. So they come together and do this. And now, here are, we learn that these two guys are secret followers of Jesus. There's lots of those. And Jesus is saying, that's not who you're called to be. Not watching from a distance. And these two guys are about to put everything at risk. All of their power, all of their status, all of their wealth, they're, they're, they've completely shifted to where they're using it on behalf of others. They're leveraging their power on behalf of someone else at the risk of losing it all themselves. Think about it. Why does, why does Mark tell us that was a really bold move? That was a really bold move to go to Pilate because they had, the Romans had just crucified Jesus and accused him of high treason. So here is how they could get really shafted on both ends. On the Roman side, go, go ask for that body and see if they don't arrest you as maybe being part of that insurrection. 
On the other part of it is if we walk away, if we go touch that body, I mean, these were Jews, dead bodies. They didn't handle dead bodies. They weren't going to handle these dead bodies. I mean, Sabbath is right around the corner. You had to walk us, for these Pharisees, you had to walk a certain distance away from dead bodies or you become unclean. They're walking away from their Jewish cohorts, too. They're giving up their, their power, their status, their money. They know those guys are going to kick them out. It's all happening right before their eyes. But you see what's happening is he is realizing that there is a kingdom. And he's obviously seeing that Jesus, the dead guy, is the king. And whoever's in that kingdom, Jesus' death is absolutely going to change their perspective on all of the things that they've spent their life achieving, accomplishing, and protecting. That's what we do with power and status and wealth. And now they're giving it all up. You say, why did Pilate give them the body? This is very rare. And Pilate, remember, when he comes to ask for the body, Pilate surprised Jesus is dead. Normally these guys lasted two, they could last up to three days on a cross. Horrifying death. And, the, and sometimes the birds would eat you. Or otherwise they'd just get you all down and put you in a mass burial. But Pilate had a couple things. <laughs> Number one, he already, he was sympathetic toward Jesus. He had already demonstrated that. He didn't want, he did a lot of things to try to keep Jesus off that cross. Now, ultimately, he caved in politically to the Jews because he didn't want to create a stink because he was protecting his own power. I don't want anybody, I don't want to lose my job, so I got to crucify this guy not to get them all riled up. Well, he certainly didn't want to rile them up again when one of the 71 of the Sanhedrin of the leaders comes and says, now I want the body. Not only did I want you to kill him, but I want the body too. Well, why would he not give him the body and cause another problem now? It's too late. He's too far in. He, to protect his power, has got to give it up. Joseph, on the other hand, is completely using his power in a, in a different way. He's not protecting anything. He's giving it all. In fact, he's using his power, and he's probably going to lose in every possible way. He's using his power, status, and wealth completely different. And the reason he used that power, the reason he got the body, was because of who he was. So you say, you got these secret disciples. What's the secret to letting out the secret? What did Joseph and Nicodemus do or know or figure out? And can you imagine the two of them in the conversation they were having on the way to Pilate? You know what this is going to mean, don't you? I mean, we might be on that cross by the end of this day. Okay, and you've had your last washing and cleansing for the Sabbath. Or you do know that uh, we're, we're not in the elite group anymore. We're done. And certainly they were having that conversation on the way. And, and John helps us sort of tease out what was the secret that led them to letting out the secret. And it was, it was what, it's what he says right here when he says, remember Nicodemus, the man who previously came to Jesus at night? Because he's revealing a secret. Joseph is revealing a secret. G, 
Nicodemus is stepping into the light. He came to Jesus in John chapter 3, hiding at night, the first Nick at night, right here. (laughs) The original Nick at night, hiding. Why? Because he didn't want anyone to know. Both he and Joseph had spent their time protecting their stuff. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to do it from a distance. I want to make sure I keep my opportunities. Look, I got family, I got kids coming up. I got I got money, power, prestige. I'm, I couldn't be in a better situation. And they're trying to keep that situation until this happens. And you remember what, what must have gone through Nicodemus' mind, and surely he and, he and Joseph were talking about it. Nicodemus said, I remember when he said to me, I had to be born again, and I didn't know what that meant. But I remember thinking to myself, how, how, and here's the secret, how does a guy who's old Start over. How does a guy who's old start over? How does a guy who has spent his whole life being educated a certain way, sincerely following religious activities, learning things, developing power, enjoying clout, has accomplished certain things, how does this guy... Start completely over. How is he going to do that? Because Jesus is essentially saying to Nicodemus, you have to start completely over. It's as if you'd never achieved a thing, accomplished a thing, or been praised for anything. Imagine that spiritually. You've got to go back to ground zero. You are no further ahead than that Roman centurion who killed me. Now you think about that for a minute. What kind of secret is that to let out of the bay? What a secret. You're both on equal footing. You both need me. You're no better. Spiritually, they're all they're figuring this out together. That position, status, wealth, spiritual knowledge, sincere religious activities, they don't impress God. So the secret of the cross is revealing this secret, that the pagan and the Pharisee are the same. See, the pagan and the Pharisee are both doing the same thing. They're trying to save themselves. And the cross is obviously Jesus trying to save us. The problem is the the pagan is just breaking all the rules. He's arrogant because he loves to do what he wants to do. He's proud of that fact. He's just... He's morally off the chain. But then you got the Pharisee on the other hand, and he keeps the rules. He's just as arrogant. He's just as proud. Neither of them need God. I'm good enough. God has to have me. I don't want God in my life. They're both selfish. They're both arrogant. They both exclude God. They're both self-made. They're both radically self-centered. And the truth is, they both make the world miserable. They both need them. I don't know if you happened to watch last night, but I watched uh, ESPN's new 30 for 30 on Notre Dame and uh, University of Miami. I'm from Miami. I loved Miami. I remember when all this went down. In 87, when I moved here, uh, the Hurricanes were the national champions, and they had this 
important game against Notre Dame, they beat them pretty bad. Well, Notre Dame wanted revenge, and in 1988, uh, both of them are heading into the end of the season, and uh, they're both undefeated. And it was a heck of a game. You can see all about it. Um, but during that year, a couple of UM guys got arrested. Uh, it was a very rare thing. It almost never happens. Um, it's a very, very good. So I don't know if you're thinking about a college, but it's a great, it's a great one. And so, and so, uh, uh, so th- this game is really hyped up and it's really important. And probably whoever wins this game is going to win the national championship. And that did, that proved true. And Notre Dame won that game. But some guys on the campus had made it. So once they saw that these guys were convicts, it hit them. It was Catholics versus convicts. That's the, that's the name of the 30 for 30. And so we, they were discussing that over ESPN all week long as and Dan Levitard, who was interviewed because he's a Miami uh, radio host and works for ESPN, was there during this time. And so he was part of the 30 for 30. And he made a comment that is absolutely important and profound as he was doing this. Because, see, this was portrayed as this is dark versus light. This is good versus evil. Okay? There's... There's the holy and the unholy. Well, Dan Lebetard said that's not really what ended up happening. What it ended up being was the unholy and the holier than thou. And so what happened was everybody hated both groups. They were arrogant. Both of them were arrogant. Neither, no one wanted to be associated with either. The ones looking down on people or the ones who were being looked down on. They were both arrogant. And that's essentially what's happening at the cross with the centurion. You got the Jew and the Roman. You got the Pharisee and the pagan are both standing at the cross. And you'd think, ah, they both need Christ. They both need to be saved. And the cross is revealing this incredible wonder. And you say, well, man, how does Joseph and Nicodemus become to just be willing to separate themselves from this identity that from childhood they had to be, you know, be connected to. And, and you see it here, and it's amazing. Pilate learns from the centurion that Jesus is dead. That's an important historical fact, that he actually died. And he gave the body to Joseph. That's the word for corpse. He gives the corpse to him. And if you can imagine what this moment would have been like, because Mark is pretty fast to tell you, to give you a window into this guy wasn't at a distance. Look at the things he was doing. This is in contrast to the females who are watching from a distance and are afraid. These guys have overcome their fear and boldly come to Pilate. And now look at what they're doing. They, they, they had to use their wealth, had to buy stuff, had to give stuff up. They took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock, then rolled a stone across. You can see the effort going into this whole dynamic, and you can see a shift, a radical shift happening happening in Joseph, in this Pharisee's mind, and all these actions that are happening with it. One of the commentaries, I got about 15, at least 15 commentaries that I'm using on the book of Mark, and uh, I, I read them in a certain order. Because now, after all these years, 
I know what angle they're probably going to give me and what sort of tidbits I'm going to get from each one of them. And I have a guy I read first because he's such an amazing writer. He's the he's a gifted writer. His name's Edwards. And he gets to this point in the text and he literally says, Joseph of Arimathea, when he takes Jesus' body, look at the language. He took the body. When he gets to this point, he says, is the first individual in the gospel literally to take the body of Jesus as Jesus commanded at the Last Supper? Here, take this. My body is broken for you. He literally takes it. What a traumatic moment. I mean, look at all that's happening in his life in the background, and now he's going to go handle a dead body, something Pharisees didn't do. The elite didn't do that. And he's going to after firemen's carry Jesus' dead body, broken body, and get it down on the ground, remove nails. He's bloodied up. It's gory. And all of a sudden you realize he's going to handle this body. He's, gonna, he's grasping. When Jesus said, take this, it's my body, He's basically saying, grab onto it, grasp it. This is now going to be the paradigm through which you view your life. No longer will you use your power against others. No longer will you try to protect it at all costs. My death becomes your death to power and status. That's the kind of kingdom this is. And he's holding that body because he realizes he's a recipient of grace. You know, the pagan, he can't believe God loves him. I can't believe, Lord, after all I've done, you love me. But the, but the, but the Pharisee is saying the same thing. All that I have done is useless. Only what you have done for me matters. And as a recipient of grace, he grabs that body and it begins to... Di- it, there's no question in the world that Joseph and Nicodemus will ever be the same again. He knew, holding that dead body, he could never look at anything culturally the same again. So he couldn't stay the same self-centered, I just wrote a list of self-centered, power-hungry, self-righteous, money-keeping, racist, misogynist, couldn't be that in the kingdom anymore. Not in Jesus' kingdom. He had to be willing to walk away from all of that. And I, I, I have said over the years, you know, um, is there a secret to the Christian? I mean, what makes a life, what makes a guy become that bold and humble at the same time? How does that work? You know? I've always said there's no secret to the Christian life. If you know somebody who you would consider a spiritual giant in your life, there's no secret. He doesn't know something you don't know. He didn't have something you don't have. He's just overwhelmed by what Jesus Christ has done for him and every day just gladly and with gratitude lives his life for him. And a lot of what he does doesn't even feel like sacrifice because he's, he's taken a hold of Jesus' death and realizes the sacrifice that was made for him. There's no secret. That's the secret. 
So the whole irony in the text is there's secrets being revealed, but the secret, it's really not that much of a secret. Jesus' death will radically change everything you've ever thought, believed, where you've come from. It doesn't matter. None of, none of it matters. He'll change all of that in your mind. And so the burial narrative is quite revealing. And so what does it say about, let me just end with this. What does it say about you and what does it say about us? Number one, when do you think in your life, I can say the same for me, you're going to become bold and humble. Stop watching from a distance. Well, you, you know, you're sort of honored to be around. You like the idea of having witnessed and seen some things about Jesus' death. You're into it. But you've never gone up and handled that thing. You've never grabbed a hold of that body like Jesus said when he took communion and said, yeah, this is now going to dictate my life. It's going to be a mess, and I know it's going to be a mess, and I know there's going to be things at risk, but I'm going to take it. I'm tired of saving face, saving money, saving power, saving myself. I'm tired of that. I'm giving it all up because of what he has done for me. And you become bold, and you become humble. The second thing it does is it creates a radical community in here because we're all so different. The cross doesn't just transform you. When you get together with other transformed people, it creates a new community, a radical community. It doesn't flatten us out. No longer women or men. That's not true. Or any of our other differences. They don't flatten out. But just somehow, because of what Christ has done, we choose to look at each other different. We don't measure each other by the same things. We're not so proud of the things. We're not so proud we're a, we're a Republican that in the midst of the community, we look down on the Democrats. You see, when you grab a hold of that body, it becomes the most important distinguishing fact about you, not your viewpoint, not your political associations. So when we converse about issues like that as a community, it should never be the kind of thing that disunifying. You want to be a Democrat, you be a Democrat. You want to be a Republican, you be a Republican. You want to be either one, fine. But it doesn't distinguish you. When we come together in here, our differences, they're still there. But not in how we treat each other. That's a radical community. That's the same with being a male and being a female. That's the same with being wealthy and, and having nothing. We have people in this church on both ends. But in here, we leverage our position, our power, our status, our experience, whatever it is we have for the community, not for ourselves, including our political stances. Um, if you've read a book years ago, and I love it, and uh, it's still, it's the kind of book you got to reread because it's, um, it's D.A. Carson, one of my favorite uh, writers, and uh, he, it's called Love in Hard Places, and this is what he says. He says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, not common race, not common income levels, not common politics. Not common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him common allegiance. That's a great line, Hillside. 
said they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he says, love one another. See, the cross, the pagan, and the Pharisee come together to form a unit. That's what the cross, that's the wonderful power and secret and uniqueness of Jesus' death. Who it brings together and what they're able to do when they leverage their resources and their viewpoints and their backgrounds and their genders for each other and for the kingdom of God. The cross accomplishes all of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that reveals so many wonderful things about reality that we get and the transformation that takes place in our lives as a result of knowing you and seeing what you have done because you were the first to leave your elite group. You left your elite group your wealth, your power. Philippians tells us you became a servant. You became obedient unto death. You laid it all aside for us. And when we come to see what you've done for us, we do the same. Come face to face with your death. We don't try to dance around it. We accept it and take it and grab it as ours and leverage what you've given us, what you've blessed us with, for others and for your kingdom and for you. Thank you for teaching us that or we'd have never figured it out. I pray for anyone in this room, Father, pagan or Pharisee, because we all need you. Someone in this room would give their life to you today. Realize what you've done. And I pray for this community as a whole, Father, that we would be unified, that nothing would be more important than our unity. No matter our viewpoints, our attitudes, our actions, our positions, anything, we wouldn't let any of those get in the way of radical community that you expect out of those who know you personally. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.